Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have April White. April is a senior writer and editor of Atlas Obscura. She previously worked as an editor of the Smithsonian Magazine, where she oversaw the publication's history-focused coverage. She holds a master's degree in history and has told surprising tales from the archives of publications including the Washington Post, the Atavist Magazine, and JSTOR Daily. An experienced researcher, she's also collaborated with nonfiction authors um, about various uh, book projects of their own. In addition, April has authored and co-authored eight cookbooks and is the former food editor of Philadelphia Magazine. But why we're having her on the show today is her recently released book, Divorce Colony. Uh, April, welcome to the History 605. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I saw the excerpt of your book in the Smithsonian Magazine and uh, started reading it. I was just kind of floored as I, I sat in my house in Sioux Falls to hear all this Sioux Falls history. Um, I wonder, had you had you visited Sioux Falls before you, you hit upon this topic? No. Um, you know, I saw the words uh, in an old newspaper recently returned from the divorce colony. And, and that was uh, what led me to Sioux Falls. Okay. Uh, but I had not previously had an opportunity to visit uh, before I started my research. Yeah. So, so Sioux Falls at, at one time, would you say from the 1880s until the first decade of the 20th century was known as the divorce colony? That was a, that was a term that was used at the time? Yeah, absolutely. So um, newspaper uh, reporters coined this term, and they had used it for various other places, but it really stuck in Sioux Falls, and it, it starts getting applied to the city in 1891 when you have the first of these really prominent uh, East Coast socialites coming out to get a divorce, hmm. and the national newspaper attention follows them, and that's how Sioux Falls gets this reputation. Okay. Well, um, perhaps before we get into these four cases, which you you wonderfully organize around these very uh, interesting women and their situations, I thought we'd start a little bit about thinking about maybe the history of marriage. And before we chat about divorces that occurred in your book and in the early 20th century, um, I thought it would be good to discuss how marriages are put together in the first place and kind of contextualize, you know, for the audience how marriage was viewed in the 1880s and 1890s. Was it, was it as common as it was for these uh, women who were a part of very powerful families for the young men and young women uh, in the marriage not to be the 
for for love not necessarily to be the only guiding factor in them getting married. In other words, if you are from a wealthy family and you were the um, the father or the mother of a prospective young man or woman getting married, did you see yourself very actively guiding them in their choices about who they would marry? You know, the father of one of the women I talk uh, about in this book actually bemoans the fact that in the United States uh, throughout this time, it's typically uh, a person picking their own spouse. Uh, Now, his daughter's marriage had gone awry, and so he was sort of saying, man, we should be more like those continental Europeans who are really influential over who their child picks as a spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do see in these prominent families, and in, in, in a lot of relationships, that societal pressures do play a big role in, in who they've chosen to marry. So they are, of course, most likely to marry within their own uh, society circles. Um, and and they all, all the women I write about in the book marry for different reasons, because as you point out, we're sort of seeing a change in marriage during this period. We're, we're moving from that real economic model of the early days of the United States um, toward, you know, sort of that idea of the love marriage that we have today. Mm-hmm. And, and we're really in that transition during this period. When would you say that that transition was complete? Or when, I guess maybe the best question is, when did it begin and when did it, when did it, um, when did that transition be completed? Well, you start seeing it when women have um, more, not a lot, but more opportunities to make some choices. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you also start seeing it with the industrialization of the United States. So as it becomes slightly easier to um, raise a family in the United States, so for instance, you don't need to have a family farm where you have to have uh, many people on that farm in order to make it run, mm-hmm. right? As, as we get more industrialization, you can have these smaller families. You can make choices that are not entirely about the economics of a family. And, and so we start seeing that change. Um, we don't see it sort of fully evolve, or, and maybe we still haven't for some people in some places, uh, until we have women having those same economic opportunities that men did, mm-hmm. such that they are free to make a choice for reasons of love instead of reasons of social standing or political uh, value or economics. Mm-hmm. Um, how common were divorces in, say, the 1880s, 1890s? Well, you know, that's a really good question because up until uh, just before the dawn of the divorce colony, so up until 1889, uh, no one really knew. Uh, Hmm. But the government decided to undertake a study of marriage and divorce and and to try to understand um, how many divorces there were uh, in the United States. And they came up with a number that they released uh, in 1889 that, of course, um, had nothing to compare it to, but it certainly sounded big. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had counted that in the 20 years previous, sort of the period of, from the Civil War through, you know, uh, the late 1880s, that there were three, uh, 320,716 divorces. Now, there, no one had ever counted before, so there was sort of no way to know, but that sounded big. Mm-hmm. And also, they knew that during this time period, divorces were increasing. And, and that's one of the things that led to the Sioux Falls divorce colony being such a pivotal moment, 
is because people had put some numbers on divorce and had started to believe that this was a problem. Mm. And and why does Sioux Falls, you, you briefly describe it in your book and then kind of reiterate it from time to time, why does Sioux Falls become the place or South Dakota become the place where divorces are, are uh, where they come to gravitate to? Uh, becomes the colony. Uh, so first, South Dakota mm-hmm. uh, becomes the place that people think about getting quote-unquote easy divorces. Because of a law that was held over from the time of the Dakota Territory. So during the Dakota Territory, there was a law put in place that allowed anyone who lived in the state for 90 days to file for a divorce. And that uh, period of time was shorter than it was in any other state except for North Dakota, which also had these, uh, this law held over from the days of the Dakota Territory. Okay. Um, so that meant that if the laws were unfavorable toward your divorce in your state, you could move to South Dakota, stay there for 90 days, and file for relief. Now, I should say, this was not designed to make divorce easy. This was simply because South Dakota wanted people who came to their state to be able to participate in all kinds of civic life very quickly, because it was a young state and growing. Right. Um, so this was just sort of coincidence that, that the divorce also fell under these laws. Now, Sioux Falls became the attractive place to go because it was the most accessible place from the east. It had five railroad lines that came uh, into the town, and it also had the best hotel for hundreds of miles, and that was attractive to East Coast socialites. Yeah, so... Uh you go through a wonderful description of that attractive hotel. I was wondering if you could tell us about the Cataract Hotel. Uh, sure. The Cataract Hotel uh, had had a couple of incarnations over the course of its life. Mm-hmm. But uh, by 1891, it is this uh, big structure at Ninth and Phillips, and it is just the center of life in Sioux Falls. Um, so even before the divorce colonists began to arrive, this is where everything happens. This is where you celebrate statehood. This is where, um, you know, any traveling salesperson who comes through town sets up shop. Um, this is just the center of all civic life. Uh, it is also, a, 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 you know, a ni- the nicest hotel. It is attractive to these people who are more used to New York accommodations. Uh, and so really quickly, it becomes a headquarters for divorcees as well. Hmm. So is that, do we, uh, the cataract is more appealing than anything in Fargo or Bismarck? Is that the case? Uh, yeah. So the, it just had more amenities yeah. and was also easier to get to. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so it's a couple of things that bring it you know, the, the the state statutes, hold over from territorial days, and then the connections with the railroads. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder if you could take us through the four characters, these uh, Maggie, Mary, Blanche, and Flora that you um, bring to life for the reader and uh, talk about uh, how you got to know these women. Yeah, so when I first came to this topic, I will absolutely admit that the thing that excited me about it uh, in those early days was just the drama and the scandal around the divorce colony. It was only later I realized what an important historical story I could tell through the women who came out to the divorce colony. So I should start off by saying that it was not only women who came to Sioux Falls. Men came too. 
But it was the women who caused the panic. It was the women who got people all concerned about what it was that was going on in Sioux Falls uh, because these women were trying to use the laws to gain their own freedom. Um, Lots of women came, and there are lots of women who I love to talk about and and certainly considered uh, as main characters of the book. But I landed on these four women because they let me do a couple of important things. They let me tell the whole arc of the story. So the women you mentioned run roughly, roughly chronologically uh, through the time period of the divorce colony. Mm-hmm. Um, they also are very different women who married for different reasons, were divorcing their husbands for different reasons. Um, so I really got to look at all kinds of different things that would bring women to Sioux Falls or bring women to seek a divorce in that time. Um, and then they, got, they let me cover um, a couple of really important aspects of the divorce debate. So the first character you mentioned, Maggie. This is Maggie DeStewers. She's a niece of the influential Astor family, mm-hmm. and she has married a, a Dutch diplomat, a baron, who everyone knows as the baron. Um, and she comes to Sioux Falls because she believes that her husband is attempting to institutionalize her and take control of her fortune. So she is accusing him of all kinds of evils against her. When she comes to Sioux Falls, she sparks this um, idea of the divorce colony, and she also angers the local bishop uh, and sort of sets him off on his course to destroy the divorce colony. So through Maggie, I get to talk about divorce and religion Mm -hmm. and sort of talk about what that influence was uh, and how it shaped debates at the time. Uh, The next character in the book is Mary Nevins Blaine. And Mary is a young aspiring actress who eloped with the son of uh, who was then the Republican standard bearer and later becomes the Secretary of State, uh, James G. Blaine, and she elopes with his son, Jamie Blaine, when they're both teenagers. Uh, And so through Mary's story, I get to talk about the intersection of politics and divorce. Um, And so that was an important reason I picked Mary. Uh, With Blanche, whom you mentioned, this is Blanche Molyneux, Mm -hmm. Blanche had the misfortune of marrying a man who went on trial for murder. Now, he was suspected of two murders, uh, the one he was tried for and also the death of a former lover of Blanche's. He was convicted of the murder he was tried for, uh, but appealed. And on appeal, his conviction was overturned in a second trial. Now, Blanche lived in New York and in New York, you could only get a divorce at the time with proof of adultery. So despite the fact that Blanche believed her husband to be a murderer, she had no cause to divorce him. So she leaves and goes to Sioux Falls to get her freedom. Uh So through Blanche, I have an opportunity to look at the intersection of law and divorce. Um, Also, it's just the most scandalous story that happens in all of the divorce colony. (laughs) Um, And then finally, Flora Bigelow Dodge, the the last character I focus on, is an opportunity for me to look at divorce and society. Now, uh, Flora comes to 
Sioux Falls uh, about a decade, a little over a decade um, after the original divorce colonists. And things have changed in that time. And so when Flora comes to Sioux Falls, what she's looking for is not just her legal freedom. She is looking for what she considers to be a dignified divorce. So she makes every effort she can to get a divorce that will be accepted by society. So in Flora, we see the ways in which attitudes toward divorce change over this period of time Mm -hmm. and how the divorce colony helps lead to this greater sense of acceptance around divorce. Hmm. Well, I I often talk to students and and others about how history is is changed over time. And uh, so you're walking through those four examples that you provided in your book uh, is a great example of seeing how these um, changes are happening. Um, I wonder if um, Mary Nevins Blaine, uh, she particularly struck me as a fascinating story because of who her um, her father-in-law was, James G. Blaine. You mentioned is, is heavily involved in Republican politics and and he directly – well, he's Secretary of State when South Dakota becomes a state. He's part of the national political scene that pulls uh, South Dakota into statehood um, when the Republicans retake power in uh, 1888 and then in 1889. And then later that year, South Dakota becomes a state after nearly a decade of Washington politics pre- um, preventing that from happening. Um, but one of the things that he puts – into our constitution and into several other states' constitution is what is today widely regarded as an anti-Catholic measure, um, which prohibited public funding of parochial schools, which was mm. kind of a, a, a non-direct uh, but a very direct and impact way of, of maintaining uh, or, or not having the uh, public funding for Catholic schools. And he and you bring out a little bit that that uh, Mary is Catholic. She's not only a Democrat, but she's Catholic. And I just kind of chuckled to myself when I read that. I thought this this is going nowhere if he <laughs> <laughs> if he has such animus for Catholics at, at the national level. He's pulling all these strings in these state constitutions while he's Secretary of State, and and he does. In fact, he succeeds um, North Dakota, Montana, I think somewhere, and then subsequently. Over 20 states have these amendments in their constitution, and he's part uh, of that. Yeah, Mary had many strikes against her, and, and her Catholicism uh, for, for James G. Blaine was, was certainly probably one of them. Yeah, yeah. As they traveled um, and, the, and the, they kind of gained their notoriety, um, what's the response from the local press and the national media regarding uh, what's going on? to Sioux Falls are certainly not looking for the attention of right. the media. Right. Um, you know, they are hoping to quietly execute this errand. Uh, but the newspapers just love this story. Um, so, you know, one of my great sources for this book um, was the Argus Leader, which was publishing, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the 1890s and covered the divorce colony oh gosh, the way TMZ covers celebrities, you know, you knew where they had dined <laughs> right. and, and when they were getting on a train and, wow. you know, who was seen outside their hotel room. Um, and then you also had a lot of national papers who either had correspondence in Sioux Falls or sent reporters to Sioux Falls to sort of camp out in the cataract 
uh, hotel lobby mm-hmm. and, uh, and get the scoop and find out what was happening uh, with these women. So you definitely see um, a fascination with these women, even as the locals and the national press, for the most part, are um, you know, declaring this to be a scandal and to be a terrible thing. They cannot get enough of this story. Right. Well, and, and do they? It seems from reading your book that they kind of come down on. For the most part, they're not hounding these women. They're not accusing these women. They're kind of explaining, uh, with some exceptions to that, I guess. But uh, the media seem to be on the side of the of the women who are traveling to the colony. Is that is that the case? Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a good question. Yes, um, I would say that they were on the side of the story. Yeah. Um, and they could, well, that true was enough. Where they got the story. Yep. Um, you know, often, often from the women who were there. So those are usually the voices that you heard. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I would say that largely, um, they were not interested in making declarations about divorce. Um, they were just more interested in telling a good story. Okay. And were they? Checking in on the Baron and and uh, Jamie Blaine on what they what their views were, or did they uh, not chase uh, that story much down? Less of that, mm-hmm. um, in part, I think, because you just didn't sort of have this critical mass of um, true, you know, uh, husbands who were you know uh, congregating on the in other a hotel. side in yeah. one place. But we cer- <laughs> you certainly had people um, reporting on uh, what what these men were up to, just not with the same um, focus. Mm-hmm. And is there any – the cataract staff or the ownership and so forth, is there any sense of what uh, they thought of this, the owner of the cataract hotel? Did they like this notoriety or what was their – Yeah, so from what I can determine around the owners of the cataract house uh, in the uh, 1890s, this has been the Corson brothers, uh, their attitude seemed to be uh, towards the divorce colonists and anyone else who might stay in their hotel mm-hmm. uh, is – if you can pay, cool. Like, mm-hmm. come on over. They mm-hmm. didn't seem to have um, a whole lot of moral stance on why people came to Sioux Falls, um, simply that they did and that they could provide a boost to the local economy. Right. And I think that's where you saw um, most of the initial acceptance of the divorce colonists, those who were not outspoken against them, um, benefited in some way from their presence. Uh, and so, you know, the idea of bringing a lot of wealthy women to a young city uh, was, you know, pretty popular. Right, right. Well, somebody who from this was not very popular was Bishop Hare. And I was wondering if you could describe to the audience uh, who is the gentleman who's kind of leading the charge against this uh Divorce colony and 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 women coming here and men coming here for divorces and and what was his motivations? Yeah, so this is uh, Bishop William Hobart Hare, and he is an Episcopal bishop who um, had been in the Dakota Territories for for a number of years already, and and was very well respected in the region. Um, he had, with the help of the Astor family, um, built the. Um, what was then St. Augusta Cathedral and now Calvary Cathedral and previously Calvary Cathedral mm-hmm. um, in Sioux Falls. Um, and so that was part of what um, really got him in a snit when Maggie arrived in the city because she was also affiliated with the Astor family. And this made him personally embarrassed mm-hmm. because of his connection. 
Uh, and I believe that that personal concern is part of what motivated him. Now, he had long been outspoken against divorce. He, he really did believe it to be an evil. Um, that's certainly what the Episcopal Church said as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of where it seems to have come from for Bishop Hare was from this real paternalism, from this real sense that he needed to protect women. And he believed that divorce was as it could be an evil perpetrated on women by husbands who would leave them. Uh, and, and that seems to be part of um, where his incredible dislike and, and ultimate decision to spend most of the remainder of his life fighting against divorce came from. Mm-hmm. And then toward the end of your book, too, you talk about how these vast distinctions between a few states, uh, like South Dakota and Nevada, I think, was the other one that had uh, such low... Uh, or short-time residency requirements in other states. What were the other states that that were kind of on the other end of the spectrum? So, yeah, in in a lot of states, you had um, residency requirements that were uh, a year. Most places were a year. So there was not a lot of value in moving from state to state if you were going to need to be there for over a year in Mm -hmm. order to get a divorce. That that did not seem to be... um, a possibility for a lot of people. Now, now some tried. Um, Maggie, the first time she tried to get a divorce, she went to Rhode Island, which had um, more more options for divorce than New York did. Uh, and she went to Newport, where her family had long owned um, mansions, and she was prepared to stay there for a year uh, in order to gain residency and file for a divorce. Now, what happens in Maggie's case is that her family figures out what she's up to and she is subjected to incredible family and social pressure not to pursue this divorce. So that was honestly one of the other attractive things about South Dakota and Sioux Falls was that for many of these women from New York or from Chicago or from Washington, D.C., it was a long way from the people who had um, influence over their lives. Mm -hmm. So they could go and they could wait out their stay without their families trying to intervene. Hmm. Well, circling back to the, to the uh, church leaders and Bishop Hare, what, what other choices might they have? I mean, they, they, uh, the bishop dives into politics. W- would there have been other choices that Bishop Hare considered in, in modifying this or protecting women, as you say, that he might have? Yeah, so when he, when he first starts out, when he first um, decides he is going to dive into this, he, he does so with a sermon. You know, he, he sort of does so with the typical tools that he might have had at his disposal. Uh, he writes uh, an open letter in the church news, in the church bulletin, mm-hmm. um, basically politely asking divorce colonists not to, you know, participate or, you know, be prominent in his congregation, because a lot of the divorce colonists did worship uh, at his church. Um, so he uses what you might think of as um, the typical tools that a religious leader might have uh, at his uh, disposal. And when he realizes that that is not having an influence, and when he realizes that most of his fellow clergy in Sioux Falls are saying similar things, and that does not seem to be changing the trajectory, mm-hmm. uh, that's when he decides, much to his own surprise, that he is going to seek out a legislative relief to this as opposed to a religious one. Okay. And that occurs in uh, 1907? 
so it occurs a couple of times, actually. Okay. Uh, so in uh, 1893 is the first time that Bishop Hare dives into this from a legislative point of view. So in uh, 1893, South Dakota changes the law from three months residency to six months residency. Okay. Um, this is not as long as some opponents wanted. It's much, much longer than the divorce colonists want, um, but that's where they end up. They announce, you know, yes, the divorce colony is closed, um, and they expect that everyone will now move on to Fargo mm-hmm. because North Dakota still has the three-month residency requirement. You don't see a lot of people going to Fargo. You do see some, but you don't see a lot, and I, I think there are two reasons for that. One is it is not as easy to spend six months or three months in Fargo as it is to spend six months in Sioux Falls. So (laughs) you're still going to come and you're still going to spend time at this hotel and sort of use these kind of well-worn by this point, well-worn channels for getting a divorce. You're going to follow in the footsteps of the women before you. Um, And I think that's the other reason it doesn't change it, which is Sioux Falls by this point, it's been about two years. Sioux Falls has a reputation And you see that even once the laws change, the way that national newspapers talk about the city doesn't change very much. Hmm. So you still have this reputation. And and you need to think about how information flows at this moment. It's not like I can Google where to go get an easy divorce, right? Mm -hmm. Like I have learned this from headlines. I've learned this from other people who know someone who went. Um, And so the reputation of the city does not change instantaneously upon the change of the laws. Okay. So anyway, that's, that's Bishop Hare's first attempt. Mm-hmm. Uh, later, uh, in 18, wait, I'm going to get this wrong, 1899, so, uh, North Dakota changes its law to be one-year residency. Oh. So now, all of a sudden, six months in, six months in Sioux Falls is short again, yeah. uh, and everyone comes on back. Mm-hmm. That's when we set up for this second battle around the divorce colony. And, and yes, to your point, um, Bishop Hare, again, in uh, 1907, is involved in some of the legislative efforts to change the laws. Now, by this point, he's quite ill, mm-hmm. so he is not as active as he was the first time around, uh, but he's still really influential. And, and uh, I think that that law has been referred to a popular ballot, is that correct, in, in 1908? It, in, in fact, was, yes. Yeah, so they, uh, they uh, changed the attempt to change it to a year uh, residency requirement, and then that does go to to a referendum. And it, was it put on the ballot because people thought it would be defeated? Is that the... So this was actually a last-ditch last effort by those who wanted to keep the law the same, did right. not want to make it more difficult right. um, to get a divorce. It was very unlikely, even from the moment they decided they were going to attempt to, to override this one-year residency requirement um, with a popular vote. It was very, very unlikely that um, there were going to be enough people who supported the idea of divorce uh, to, to overrule this. That said, the number of people who agreed to sign a petition and the number of people who did vote for it is so far and away a larger show of support for divorce than you would have gotten 20 years earlier mm-hmm. um, that I think you need to recognize it as a victory for the um, for the sort of um, acceptance of this being a necessary part of a of a world that has marriage is also the opportunity to dissolve that. Okay, so then it it, it does 
remain then as a 12-month uh, residency requirement? Yes, yes. It, the, the referendum fails and it remains as a, as a 12-month uh, residency requirement. Right. And the referendum fails, I think, in your book at 60% or so of the vote. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I looked up uh, some sources and I saw what else was on the referendum ballot um, in 1908. So on the same ballot is uh, a referendum about taxes, which is not that surprising, a referendum about the attorney general's salary, a referendum about local liquor uh, control, mm-hmm. uh, a referendum about protection of quails uh, hunting, which I guess the population of quail had long been a, an issue since territorial days, and a referendum against Sunday performance, which passed but by a super narrow margin. So of, the, of those six, uh, three passed and uh, the divorce one passed um, – well, the protection of quail got more votes than the divorce. <laughs> the divorce thing. So it's always interesting to see about thinking in time and what else is going on and, and uh, um, uh, what the hot political issues are. Yeah, absolutely. And there were some efforts in that to sort of uh, build a coalition around um, uh, anti-prohibition and pro-divorce, but mm-hmm. that all sort of fell apart in the, in the days before the referendum. Right, right. And this is uh, this is ten Novembers prior to women's suffrage passing in South Dakota, so women still can't yeah. vote. So these are all men voting for this. I think that's important mm-hmm. to kind of highlight who's voting and and uh, so forth. Um, I wonder if you could the legal aspect of this or the cottage industry that grows up um, about divorce law and family law. Uh, there's some interesting lawyers that are in this story too. Who would you like to kind of call out to the? listeners about uh, who are the lawyers who are assisting uh, the process here in Sioux Falls in South Dakota? Yeah, so one of the things that I I really liked um, was the fact that you had the Cataract House on one corner and then you had the Edmondson Jamison block on the other corner there. And there were so many lawyers uh, in that office building. And it really seemed to have sort of an outsized number of lawyers for the size of the city, uh, you know, at this particular moment. Yeah. one of the people, he's a judge early in the um, early in the divorce colony. Judge Aiken is is one of the people I find really interesting. He he goes from being uh, the judge who's deciding on these divorce cases, um, and and sort of at different points during his tenure as a judge, he is the sort of darling of those who oppose divorce, and later he's the darling of those who want divorces. Mm. Um, And then after he leaves the bench, he becomes a pretty prominent divorce uh, attorney uh, in town. And so I I found him to be a a pretty fascinating character because uh, sort of everyone in this story at some point or another thinks that he is going to be their savior. Yeah. Well, at one point, is it Flora who winds up marrying her? Or which one of the? Uh, but you're thinking of Blanche. Blanche. Yes. So, yes. Well, yeah. Wallace Scott. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's a uh, he is her attorney, and 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 then later, once she has gotten her divorce, uh, to the great great shock of Sioux Falls, um, they sneak off to Chicago and get married, and then Blanche moves back to Sioux Falls, and that was something that, to my knowledge, no divorce colonist had previously done. Uh-huh. Now, of course, these women had to swear in court that they were residents of South Dakota and that they had not come entirely for a divorce. They had Mm -hmm. come because they wanted to live in South Dakota. And almost to a person, they leave immediately after getting a divorce, especially in the early years. Right. 
Um, so, you know, by the time Blanche has, has gotten her divorce and, and remarried, it's just so shocking to Sioux Falls to realize that they are going to have to figure out how to deal with one of these divorced colonists uh, permanently as part of their community. Yeah. And how does how do they fare? Do they live a long, happy Ooh, life? Not so well. Oh, yeah, oh boy. No, it, it's, okay. it's pretty rough for Blanche. Yeah. Um, she and her husband are sort of excluded from some um, clubs that, that Wallace had previously been a part of. Um, and then uh, later, although I will say, um, Blanche does, it doesn't make the book, but Blanche does have a, a singing performance in town. Um, and, and the place is pretty packed, although it seems like a lot of people have turned out mainly out of curiosity, mm-hmm. not out of support. Right, right. Was that at the Cataract Hotel or where was that performance? You know, that I don't remember, uh, but it was not at the Cataract. It was one of, one of the theaters. Okay. Um, it, as you end the book, you kind of uh, talk about how divorce laws in the 60s and 70s then change around the country. Uh, well, uh, Theodore Roosevelt posits uh, or tries to get a, an amendment to the Constitution about divorce. So that, that doesn't go anywhere. But I think at the national level, a lot of the national leaders are trying to sort out how do we deal with these states that have very low residency requirements or short residency requirements. Mexico, right across the line, you can mm-hmm. get a divorce there very quickly and then come back. And then finally, and then New York, which holds on to its um, pretty high bar uh, in 2010, um, all the way till 2010. Um, who You mentioned Governor Rockefeller and his divorce. I thought it was um, – I re- well, ironic, I guess, in some ways, and sad in others that uh, uh, Governor Rockefeller in 1962, he and his wife divorce, and she goes to Reno to get the divorce because New York's laws are still so restrictive. Uh, how, how does that kind of stuff change into what is common now, no-fault divorce, and where where's that kind of change over time uh, land us, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So as we've discussed, you know, it's, it's about 1908 when the Sioux Falls divorce colony truly shuts down. Mm-hmm. And that's when, as you mentioned, uh, people start going to Reno. And what's a little different about the story in Nevada is that with a brief, one brief exception, the laws in Nevada continually get shorter. So each, uh, the residency requirement gets shorter until, um, I think it's sometime in the 1930s, you can go and you can stay there for just six weeks in order to become a resident and get your divorce. Hmm. So to me, that was, that's part of what makes Sioux Falls a really interesting tipping point in this conversation, because this is the last point where really you see the divorce opponents um, winning the argument. Um, and they're winning the legal argument at this point. What they're not winning is the social argument anymore. Right. Um, so what I find really interesting is I, I mentioned earlier, there's a report that the U.S. government puts out just before the start of the divorce colony about the, the number of divorces. Then just after the close of the divorce colony, just after this referendum we were discussing, there is another report that comes out. And for those who oppose divorce, it's a very disappointing report. Because what you find is that over the basically 20 years where people who oppose divorce have thrown everything they possibly can at divorce. So they have put up religious barriers. They've put up legal barriers. They've put up social barriers. um, They put up political barriers. It really didn't matter. People are still going to get the relief they want. Mm -hmm. So we still see divorce rates rising. 
And, and that's the other thing that sort of makes, uh, makes Sioux Falls this tipping point. Now, it's mostly a tipping point in social acceptance, because as you point out, it takes a long time for the laws to change after that. And we see a sort of slow evolution into the uh, universal no-fault version of divorce we have today. Mm-hmm. And what I think you find over this time is that states largely start to recognize that their laws aren't doing them any good. So people are finding ways to separate, be that sort of extra legal, be that making agreements um, outside of the court so that they can live separate lives, mm-hmm. be it them going to another state or going to Mexico, where at one point you could, in fact, get a divorce in one day in mm-hmm. one Mexican state. Um, and so because people have found ways around the law, states have very little control over this part of marriage, and, and that is of concern to them. So you basically start seeing laws change to catch up with reality um, so that the courts and the state can have some say over how marriages end. Um, and, and that's largely where you get the push towards more realistic divorce laws. Mm-hmm. Well, and residency has a lot of entry into various facets of life, everything from taxes to hunting licenses, right? Uh, so I imagine they're kind of balancing state governors and legislators are balancing all of that stuff up against this kind of one 800-pound gorilla in the room, the divorce uh, aspect of the law and thinking people are getting around it anyway, just as you said, and perhaps we, we need to think about other facets of our policy that hinge on residency requirements. Yeah, and you raise a good point. It was the difference between the statutes in various states that, that caused a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, we see it play out during the era of the divorce colony, where you will have a uh, a woman come home with a divorce decree from uh, South Dakota, but her husband back in New York believes that's not valid, and the right. courts have to try to sort that out. Mm-hmm. We have one instance in which um, a man from Massachusetts comes home with a divorce decree, uh, he remarries. Uh, he then passes away, and his first wife uh, decides to claim that she is his heir. Yeah. Uh, and this case makes it all the way to the Supreme Court. Wow. So we have a lot of questions of like, are you married? Are you not married? Are you married in some states but not others? Uh, a lot of potential confusion. Are your children legitimate or illegitimate, depending mm-hmm. on what state they live in? Um, and that confusion led uh, people to think about how to make the laws more uniform because you really potentially had a lot of problems there. Right. Well, let's let's talk about sources a little bit. In the acknowledgments, you mentioned the state archives and uh, Ken Stewart was the archivist there. Sarah Casper, um, I think, helped you out at times um, at the state. That's great that you were able to, to interact with them. And, and what were some of your other sources? Yeah, so the very first thing I did when I saw the words, the divorce colony, uh, was call up the courthouse, the current courthouse mm-hmm. uh, in Minnehaha County, mm-hmm. and um, and say, hey, do you have these divorce records from, you know, 100-plus years ago? Right. And their answer was yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I was living in Massachusetts at the time, and or I guess I was living in Pennsylvania at the time, actually. Mm-hmm. Long time I've been working on this project. I was living in Pennsylvania at the time, and I was going to fly out there, and so I said, you know, do you really have these divorce records? And in fact, they do have a lot of them, and they were incredibly uh, kind and helpful at the beginning of my research. 
um, giving me an opportunity to look at the court dockets from the era and sort of understand the scope of what uh, this story was, uh, and then start digging into um, some actual divorce files that they still had on microfilm. Um, the state archives was wonderful um, to start tracking down some of those additional uh, records that were sort of scattered among various other courthouses in the state but mm-hmm. had been accessioned by the archives. Right. Um, so that was a real starting point for me uh, in terms of understanding if I could tell this story in the way that I wanted to. Right. Well, your research is very thorough, uh, not only the newspapers, which, of course, as you pointed out, they have their agenda of selling a story. So you always have to take it with a big grain of salt, exactly what they're saying. But the but the records are, um, well, they're also they also have an audience and a purpose, and so you need to kind of weigh all that. You you clearly had a great advisor in Nancy Cott, who's written a book on marriage. I'm wondering how your um, how your book kind of fits within maybe a larger scope of what she's done about the history of marriage. Yeah. So one of the things that Dr. Cott did that was really influential for me um, is in one of her books, uh, Public Vows, uh, she lays out sort of a, a really succinct understanding of the importance of understanding social pressures on marriage. Uh, and it, in reading this, I sort of came to understand that we had not looked at divorce through this same historical lens uh, that she was looking at marriage through. Mm -hmm. So for me, this idea, so her uh, thesis is that there are essentially three levels of, of public influence on a private marriage. So she is saying, um, you know, you have friends and family and immediate neighbors in the community and they exercise this control over a marriage through their approval and disapproval. And, and you feel that really intensely as a couple. Mm-hmm. Then you also have this level of sort of state control, uh, legislatures and judges. They're setting the terms. And then you have these federal policies and these federal um, uh, values that... Um, provide incentives or disincentives to do various things in, in marriage. Um, and that really was a, a lens through which I wanted to look specifically at divorce okay. and, and to think about not just what was happening legally, because we have, we have a very good history of um, the legal evolution of divorce in the United States. Um, lots of amazing scholars have looked at this. But often they overlook or... Um, lump into a larger category, the Sioux Falls divorce colony, with other places that had served as destinations for unhappy spouses previously. And, and for me, once I applied Dr. Cott's framework to the idea of divorce, it's when it became clear to me that in Sioux Falls, we saw a social tipping point that we hadn't really appreciated as much as we should up until now. Hmm. Interesting. Well, um, uh, April, thanks a lot for your fascinating book and the great conversation. Uh, again, the book is entitled The Divorce Colony. It's published by Hachette Group just this June. Um, you'll be speaking uh, in Sioux Falls soon. Can, can you uh, share with us the date of that? Date yeah, location? I will be in Sioux Falls uh, on Tuesday, October 4th. I'll be doing two events at the Old Courthouse Museum. Uh, at noontime, there'll be a brown bag lunch where I think we're going to get to talk a lot about research and sources. So if that's your Great. thing, please join me. 
Uh, and then in the evening at 6.30, we'll be doing uh, an interview and a book signing uh, that will actually take place in the courtroom of the Old Courthouse Museum, right. uh, which is where some of the most um, dramatic scenes in the book took place. And I'm just really excited to be in that space. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Uh, I look forward to that. I hope you can, I can join you. And um, I would love to see you. And uh, thanks again for this. And uh, thanks for sharing your book. And uh, we've learned a lot about Sioux Falls uh, through this and certainly South Dakota. Uh, thanks, April, for joining us. Thank you. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.